Hi, dear listener. Sarahamr speaking. Welcome to the Learning Day, a journey to explore how we can integrate learning in our everyday lives. I'm a huge fan of Patriot Act, a Netflix show by Hassan Minaj, an incredibly talented comedian who shines a light on a new, relevant and complex subject every week. At the end of the last episode of 2019, Hassan reflected on how hard it is to keep tabs on so many issues at all times, through the media, the internet, social media, etc. There's even a word for it. Compassion fatigue. It's like we have 50 tabs open in our mental browsers and we're about to crash. Something's got to change. So this is what I'm pitching. I've helped understood. However, which tab should I close? What should I choose to care about? And then how can I make sense of those complex subjects since I don't have a son and his team to guide me through all of them? If you recognize yourself in these worries, this episode is for you. Today's guest is Gemma Milne. Gemma simplifies complex topics related to technology and science and is passionate about understanding how those affect our lives as a society. We talk about how Gemma chooses the content she consumes, how the different jobs she has had and the groups of people she is part of support her understanding of complexity, her tips to how critically think about the messages around us, and she builds the case for why we should go through the often painful process of caring. I hope you enjoy our chat. Hi Gemma, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good Sarah, how are you? Very good. Uh, having a busy week, but that's that's good news, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, ho I hope that the stuff that you're busy with are good things and uh, not horrible life yes. admin or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, don't, I can't complain. I can't complain. <laughs> I also heard you've been busy with your uh, book launch. Yes, it uh, comes out in April. So we're we're sort of in this space where it's like okay it's January so I guess we should probably start doing some marketing but then at the same time it still feels a little bit early so there's a lot of like planning and admin and making sure there's no typos and things like that but yeah it's uh it's really exciting. I'm sure we'll have the chance to talk about your book further into this conversation. Awesome. So I would like to start by saying a sentence that I found on your website. It's safe to say Gemma is a curious explorer and bundles her vast career background into a tapestry of expertise. I really like this sentence and I have two questions for you. What makes you a curious explorer and which chapters of this story would you like to highlight today? Oh gosh, um, what makes me a curious explorer? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I, I struggle to understand why people wouldn't be curious about the world we live in both in terms of I don't know the planet and how things work but also people and societies I don't I mean I, I I'm very very easily odd shall we say um I spend a lot of time <laughs> me metaphorically with my mouth hanging wide open like what you know um and I don't know I feel like if you are the sort of person that likes to read widely or talk to people or or watch documentaries or all these sorts of things that, that I love to do. It's, it's, it's very easy to kind of feel that sense of awe and wonder, even at things that are horrific, shall we say, not necessarily always good awe and wonder, but 
um, that sort of shock of like, wow, the world really works like that. You know, I, I, I feel that regularly and I like that feeling. So I guess I seek it out. Um, I don't know. And then chapters of my story. I mean, it's sometimes hard to kind of highlight which which of the chapters of your own story are the most interesting. Um, so uh, maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll leave that to you to decide. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm curious about many parts of that story, but maybe I'll ask another question. I think maybe it will guide us there. I know that you like to read a lot. And I also saw that uh, you mentioned that as well. You mentioned documentaries, other ways of learning or just being at, at all, like you said, of the world. How do you choose which books to read, which documentaries to, re to, to watch? Like, How do you filter through so, so much stuff that's out there? Um, probably with, with great sense of FOMO is <laughs> probably the best way of answering that. There's, there's too much out there. I, I mean, my boyfriends and I, we were, we were sorting out our bookshelves, uh, recently we're moving house, although we do actually sort our bookshelves out regularly because we're, we're those kind of people. <laughs> and, um, we decided to count up all the books that we had acquired or bought or been given or whatever, uh, in 2019 last year. And um, it was something insane, like almost 200 books. I think it was like 194 or something like that. And I remember feeling both this feeling of like, oh my God, we're so lucky. We have so many books and people have like, because every Christmas and like birthday, all I ever ask for is books. So I, I, I get given books. Um, we go to like secondhand bookshops and I do spend an inordinate amount of money on books. Um, so I was both like, oh my God, so many books, this is amazing. And then the other side of me was like, oh my God, so many books to read. I can't possibly read 194 next year, which means I'm going to be behind again and da, 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 da. So, you know, I, I have like, my Evernote account is full of URLs, like read this later, um, I, you know, lists of the documentaries that I want to watch or, you know, there's not enough time in my life to, to, to read or watch everything that I want to. Um, so I kind of just follow what I'm what's kind of pulling me I guess um so for instance at the moment I'm reading a book um it's called Nine is in the German for no N-E-I-N and it's all about like the people in Germany who were against Hitler during the Second World War and the sort of internal resistance um within within Germany and and, and abroad and um it's really interesting I'm enjoying it but it's quite heavy and this morning a book arrived called Motherwell which is a memoir and I've been really looking forward to reading this book it's by Deborah Orr the late Deborah Orr for ages and I promised myself that I would finish nine first before I started a new book but this new one came in the post and I've already read like 50 pages of it just today so it's kind of just I don't know it's just what's ever in front of me whatever is making me excited and I try my best to have more than one thing going at a time. You know, I, I probably have about two or three books I'm sort of reading at the same time, mainly because I, I, I not get, it's not about getting bored. It's more that I'm so excited by something else and I want to dive into it and I'm, I'm kind of impatient. Um, but at the same time, I really enjoy trying to find weird links between stuff. So I guess following your nose and diving into stuff that just really fascinates me um, allows for that, I guess. Yeah, I, rec I recognize uh, myself as well in what you said and struggling to finish a book <laughs> when there's <laughs> another one. Um, yeah, and, and this this idea of like connecting the links, um, yeah. that happens to me a lot with books, documentaries, just conversations I have with other people. I'm like, oh, I've, I've read that somewhere. Yes, it's such a good feeling though. It's such an awesome feeling when that happens. Like that, I suppose that's kind of what I'm kind of subconsciously seeking out from 
what I read or people I talk to, the conferences I go to, like, I'm always looking for that, like, oh, that's so similar to this other thing, or, oh, that's kind of got its roots in the word value or responsibility or whatever it is that I'm interested in it at one point. Although saying, going back to what you said about finishing books, I mean, I, I rarely don't finish a book. If I start something, I'm kind of in it for the long haul and I get really sort of anxious about stopping a book midway through. And I've like read all of the blogs that say, you know, you should... If you don't like a book, put it down, don't finish it, blah, blah, blah. But I feel like I'm quite particular about what I pick up in the first place. And so I suppose it's me. I have to sort of remind myself, like, there was a reason you bought this book or there was a reason that you picked up in the first place. And maybe that just hasn't been realized yet, you know, if you're only halfway through. So Mm. I think it's more about the curation around the things you gather and the things that you start more so than the things you finish. And I'm also always trying to realize that when you read something, you know your mood and how tired you are and all that kind of plays into it too so but yeah I did actually there was a book recently that I I couldn't read the last sort of 50 pages I was just so unbelievably bored and I just was like I need to put it down (laughs) but I had something to say about it and I had an opinion about it the worst thing is when you read something and you feel nothing you know yes it can feel like a waste of time yeah exactly because you don't because if you I feel like if you've got a bad reaction to a book there was a book I read earlier on this year called Less which I think it won, was it the Pulitzer Prize for fiction or there's something? It, it won this huge fiction prize. Um, and a lot of people went on about it. I had a lot of friends who went on about how amazing this book was, this novel. And I read it and I was just, I was so angry throughout the entire book. <laughs> like I, I, the, the, the author was like writing about class, but he at no point seemed to realize that his own class was like the problem and he did he did actually like address it but in just such a terrible way and it was oh man i was so infuriated but at the same time i'm so glad i i read it mainly because it's meant i've been able to have this exact conversation with loads of people and it's really fun to like be angry yeah. about something sometimes but <laughs> <laughs> and also sometimes thinking uh trying to figure out which things you don't have to be angry about yeah um and so you you've talked about reading the books consuming content in general for pleasure but you are a science and tech writer. How how does the reading for your work, the, the way you read, how does it change? Um, and can you tell us more about that that job that might not be very familiar for most people? Sure. Um, so yeah, I'm as you said, I'm, I'm a science and technology writer. Um, I've been a freelancer for about four years. And so I sort of wrote pieces about science and technology to outlets such as I don't know the BBC Guardian Forbes all those sort of places and have done that for a little while um and I've also done a lot of stuff like doing keynote talks interviewing people on stage um moderating panels at big conferences mm-hmm. um and then I also do a little bit of work in the sort of investment side so being like a consultant for the European government and Innovate UK mm-hmm. around sort of not always startups, but types of technology that are worth uh, sort of government funding. And so I've kind of had this, I suppose, weird career for the past couple of years where most there's a sort of reason I don't I don't really like calling myself a journalist. I don't really consider myself a journalist because I do all these other things. Um, and so instead, I, maybe I'm closer to like, I don't know, quote unquote, commentator or something like that mm-hmm. um so my job is basically to understand what's going on within particular areas of science and tech and translate that or comment on it or advise people on it or whatever that is um and for me the the area that I find most fascinating is, is what's called deep tech so it's basically science that's just at the cusp of coming out of the lab and being turned into a business or into a product or whatever 
So things like biotechnology, quantum computing, uh, some of the sort of latest energy um, technologies like fusion energy, things that are just starting to spin out. I find really fascinating, not just in terms of the technology and the science, but the whole process um, of, you know, how do you get science out of the lab into the real world and actually change society as a result? And because my I suppose my area of focus or my area of interest in terms of being a science tech writer is not in explaining the science and tech, but rather putting into the context of how you get from lab experiment to, I don't know, new product or new way of doing things. It kind of requires me to understand many, many different parts of a system, almost like a chain from that sort of experiment part all the way out to society changing. And so in terms of like, I guess, gathering all that information, it's not always from what I read. It's probably people I speak to, conferences I go to, um, just even seeing the headlines and the, the kind of general way people talk about science technology. But I feel like reading really broadly is yes for pre- for pleasure, but it also massively informs how I write about science technology. And I like, I like to say that that's kind of what sets me apart or writers like me apart separate from the kind of um, science and technology journalists that you'll normally see in the places like New Scientist, is I really like to try and put science and tech into a much broader context. So it's not going, this is how this works, but rather, you know, should we have this? Or um, why does this work uh, in a broader context? Or, you know, how do we fund this? These sort of questions are what's really interesting to me. And you have to understand society much more broadly in order to answer those questions. You can't just know your chemistry and your physics and biology you have to understand economics and politics and I don't know human behavior to some degree and how businesses work and I guess I've been lucky um, that my career has sort of spanned lots of different things you know from being in at university and then being in corporate corporate life I was in investment banking for a short while then I worked in advertising so I kind of also got to understand media and paid media and kind of propagation of narratives um, and then being a freelancer and understanding things from an outsider looking at everything from an outsider perspective so when you start kind of piecing together all those bits um for me it only really makes sense to be this really broad reading thinking kind of person in order to do what I, what I do within science tech if I was like I don't know I had a beat that was you know, chemical physics or whatever, I'd probably spend a lot more time reading exactly what's coming out that field, whereas I'm I'm way more broad than that. Um, does that answer your question? Um, I even forgot what the question was because I was so I was paying attention to every every single You're asking me about how how I read like for work. Exactly. Yes. And and as I was uh, listening to you um answering my question, I was noting uh, some words um on my notebook and you said a few times, understand, you said um, general, you said new stuff, and you said, should we have it and why? Hmm. Um, and I feel like those two questions are not usually asked when we are hmm. talking about tech, mainly, as I'm, I'm closer to technology than to science, and that's, that's why I say this. Although I, I, I do feel like I struggle Although I pose those questions myself, then I struggle to answer them because the, the subjects are so complex. Yeah. Um, and there's so many angles. Um, how did you how did you get into this this world of questioning such complex topics? How did I get into asking complex questions? I mean, I 
I think it's just the questions that I have, to be honest. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I've been, I've been learning, or I feel like I'm still learning. I'm, I, I'm not at the point yet, but I've learned over time that questions that might sound silly or uh, basic, um, or whatever, to uh, from a person who might perceive themselves as an outsider, are sometimes the most potent, important questions that can be asked about whatever the thing is. And I suppose because I, you know, I have a depth of knowledge in many different places, mainly just because I'm really interested and I, I read deeply, I suppose. And I, you know, I, I phone up people and be like, tell me more about this. I'm interested in it. And then, you know, you, you, you build that knowledge sort of organically to, to some degree, but I am a generalist. And so whenever I'm in spaces with experts, I always kind of feel a bit like an outsider. Um, but I'm really, really confident in asking questions and I really don't care if I look stupid. And, you know, when I was in high school or even primary school as well, like I was always the kid who was so happy to just put their hands up and be like, I don't understand this. Can you explain? And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that I'm, I know that I'm intelligent, you know, like not, I'm not trying to boast here, but like, I, I, you know, mm -hmm. I know that I'm clever. I've always been told that I was clever from such a young age. That was always a thing I was most proud of, like my intelligence, my knowledge and my grades. And so if I don't understand something in my head, I'm sort of going, well, if I don't get it, there's probably a load of people here that don't get it. And that's not, that's not an immodest thing. Yeah. It's just like a rational thing, you know? And I don't know. I mean, and normally I find that when I ask what might be perceived as a stupid question, you get really interesting answers. Um, and sometimes the expert you're asking doesn't know the answer, which kind of gives you a really nice sense of feeling, not that you've caught out the person, but that you've stumbled upon something that maybe they hadn't considered. And that's like a really nice feeling, particularly when you've got slight imposter syndrome about experts. So I don't know. I mean, it is genuinely asking questions that I have, but I think also the sort of second half of the answer is, um, because I have been lucky that I've spent time in many different jobs, but also many different um, kind of types of groups of people and um, like, you know, where I grew up and where I am now are very different. And, I, you know, I've kind of always been, you know, it's funny that that quote that you took from my website, the word tapestry. Mm -hmm. um, I've been to, I got told from a young, a young age, that I had like the quilted personality or quilted knowledge, you know. Um, so it was interesting that they they wrote tapestry. I remember reading that being like, huh, that's funny. Um, but anyway, and so I've always been seen as this, what's unique about me is I have all these weird bits to me. And so I can't help but sort of put things into different contexts. It, it come, I suppose it comes relatively natural to me. So if I read about a piece of technology or science or a new law or whatever it is, um, I'll be, I sort of, it's not conscious, but I suppose I, I put it in lots of different scenarios in my head. I'm kind of like, oh, well, what would that look like to my gran? And what would that look like mm -hmm. to my colleague? And what would that look like to me in 10 years time? And, you know, and that's where I find the most interesting questions. It's like when you put it in those contexts and then you're like, oh, that doesn't work. Or, oh, that doesn't, that I don't understand how that would make sense or whatever. Um, so yeah, I suppose it's about looking at things from different angles and reveling in the process of doing it. You know, I, I enjoy doing that. I think it's fun and I, I enjoy asking questions and I enjoy being a little bit of a skeptic sometimes and a little bit of a, well, hold on a second, you know. Um, but I've, I mean, it's got better over time. I think my ability to ask questions has certainly got better over the last couple of years that I've been doing my work and also particularly of writing the book, which is all full of questions. 
um, that's really honed my ability to try and think, you know, deliberately think about things from different angles. Um, yeah, I hope that answers the question. <laughs> it did. Um, and I'm, I'm going to use it to, to ask you to tell us about your book. And it feels to me that it was the, the fact that you like to ask the hard questions that led you to the book, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was one one half of it. <laughs> um, so I'll tell you the other half in a minute. But yeah, the, the book is called Smoke and Mirrors. Uh, the, the subtitle is How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It. And um, as the subtitle kind of uh, states, the book is about hype and the role that hype plays, particularly in science and technology, and how it kind of nudges or distracts or fuels um, progress in various different ways. And originally when I wanted to write the book, it actually came from a place of frustration. It didn't come from a place of asking questions. It came from a frustration around hype. Um, I was spending a lot of time watching startup pitches at conferences. Before that, I'd worked in advertising. So obviously, you know, at a literal hype factory. <laughs> um, and then I work, you know, and I worked in corporate innovation, which a lot of that is is literally smoke and mirrors, you know, in front, well, not literally, but you know what I mean? It, you know, it's, yeah. it's smoke and mirrors and it, trying to make a company look, frankly, more interesting than it actually is. A lot of what stuff we did was good, of course, but, you know, it, it, there's a marketing yeah. function to these things. And so it was coming from a space of frustration of knowing that all that existed um, and then reading articles about startups or scientists or technologies that you know, I was just like, what? How could you have come to that conclusion? That is utter bollocks, you know, and just being kind of frustrated, I suppose. So originally it was a book that was going to be like hype busting, I suppose. So there's there's nine chapters and they each have a different focus. So like chapter one is on the food industry. Chapter two is cancer. Later on, there's AI, there's fusion, there's uh, fusion energy, there's brain computer interfaces, all space, Elon Musk, of course. Um, so, you know, originally it was going to be each chapter was going to be like, this is what people are saying about this. And I'm going to tell you that the hype is wrong. And while I was doing the research, I started being like, actually, when is hype good? And what narratives do we need in order for science and technology to move further forward? And I guess what I got to, I guess subconsciously, was that actually it's about asking better questions. It's about people being able to critically think or not even being able to critically think, being empowered to critically think out loud um, and feeling like people can, you know, you don't need a PhD in computer science to have an opinion on new laws around AI um, and I think what I wanted to do with the book was to yeah you know face these narratives head on and say why are these narratives even here and why do they propagate and what is it about certain catchphrases like robots are going to steal our jobs for instance that stick hmm. um, and then what's the reality behind that and how can we be more responsible ourselves, each individual, in the way that we we talk about technology? Because the, the argument I'm kind of making is if we don't if we don't all better critically think, we're sort of accidentally, shall we say, building a future that's that's not um, in our best interests. And I, you know, I, my sort of call call to action is for better critical thinking. And I try and put a couple of there's a couple of tips and whatnot in there, not explicitly because I didn't want to write a how-to book, but there's a couple of tips around, you know, how do you hone your critical thinking? How do you ask better questions? And it really is all centered around this, the different angles by which you look at things and and, and various others, which you can find out if you pre-order before April. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I w as you were speaking, I remembered 
um, my very own experience with hype. <laughs> oh yeah, tell me. It was around 2016. I was studying, doing my master's, and the last part of the master's uh, was to, uh, the, the goal or the challenge was to create a startup. It could be any startup, kind of a fake startup. Mm. For a month, we had to run it as a startup. And one of my group colleagues, he said, why don't we do something with blockchain? And I'm like, I have no idea oh, what blockchain oh is. Oh, God, here we go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know what blockchain is, it's not relevant for this conversation. It's, it's this new thing, not as new now, but in 2016, it was quite new and no one knew what it was. And yeah, we, <laughs> we run our blockchain um, startup. We create a website. Uh, we had like a whole, like, uh, you know, unique seller proposition. We went after, uh, potential clients. We created our social media, uh, we created our medium article. So like all of these things, and we still until today get likes on our Facebook page. Oh my God. We got mentioned. Yes. We got mentioned on articles on medium. Oh, we had, no. <laughs> yeah, we had people, uh, call us from potential clients send us emails and we're like what oh my <laughs> <have> goodness no <laughs> i have so i have a very similar story to this i have a very similar story to this which was actually also part of my frustration so i i got interested in blockchain you know probably around at the same time 2016 2017 um i'm actually i, I don't I'm not really that interested. It was more that I was like, this could be an interesting solution to a very specific problem within within academia, um, the process called peer review. And there was a there was a sort of a few people writing about how peer review, like blockchain could revolutionize peer review and all this sort of thing. Anyway, I'd written a little like blurb about it or something. And I think I wrote one article about blockchain on a small B2B website. And that was it. Like I had I, I was not my name next to the word blockchain wasn't obvious at all on the internet. And then I got asked by this conference to, you know, they'd seen my little bit about blockchain and peer review. And they were like, oh, could you come join a panel? Um, that's, you know, we've got like the NHS on the panel at the National Health Service in the UK and a few other kind of health related, you know, let's see how blockchain can relate to health. And can you talk about peer review? And I was like, yeah, I'm interested in that. Cool. So I did that talk. And though, so that talk and those two tiny articles are literally my only digital footprint of me being associated with blockchain. And I still, to this, this was like years ago, I still to this day get people on LinkedIn adding me and asking if I can join board of advisors to new blockchain companies. And I'm like, if who are the people saying yes to this, first of all? Yeah. And second of all, like, it just makes me so suspect of the whole thing. It's just, oh, I I, I deliberately do not even touch blockchain because I just find it so difficult to, to work out where to begin, frankly. <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, maybe we should have been, in my case, we should have been more clear that it was um, an experiment. It wasn't real. But at the same time, it was exciting to see, like, yeah, okay. Is it it's simple to like mm. get an idea out there? And mm. it's scary as well. And yeah. yeah, so you already mentioned some tips. I don't want you to give away all the, the gold <laughs> in your book. Um, but if you can give us some ideas, how do we cut through this clutter? Like we we yeah. hear talking about um, fake news, hype, as you mentioned, information overload, our own echo chambers. Um, how do we how do we cut through all of this and find what's relevant? Yeah, it's really really hard, and I think part of the difficulty, which um, before I can I give some of those tips and tricks, I think part of the difficulty is the fact that 
one of the great things about you know the internet is it democratizes so many things we hear about this all the time right yeah. so you know anyone can be a writer anyone can be a thought leader anyone can start a startup blah 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 and those are really great things sometimes and other times they're really really not and I think part of this democratization it also makes it very very difficult to kind of understand expertise and it's it's a difficult one because in some sense you have people so say if you take journalism for instance people who are at the big publications um who you know have the the credits next to their name you know 10 years in the new york times or whatever um it's very easy to sort of see their credibility but then at the same time we know the huge issues around you know diversity and hiring and you know it's mm-hmm. there's not enough women not enough people of color not enough people from different classes you know all that sort of thing um, and so the the internet and the sort of democratization of journalism allows for more voices to come in. But then it's really, really difficult to work out which voices are, for lack of a better word, worth listening to. And it's the same in kind of so many different areas. Um, but yeah, so in terms of, I guess, tips and tricks, I mean, there's many different ways of thinking about how you critically think. I mean, there's so much out there. If you type in how to critically think, there's so much out there. There's so many books on this, courses on it, so on and so forth. But the way I think about it is, first of all, looking at things from different angles. So if you see a statement, for instance, robots are going to steal your jobs. Let's take that, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, w- what does that statement mean in different places? So, for instance, what does that mean in London versus Stirling in Scotland versus Lisbon in Portugal versus a tiny town in Alabama versus Beijing, right? It, it like genuinely just... For, do a little thought experiment and think about the the different places that that sentence is being said. Think about the type of people that are hearing that sentence or deciding whether it's relevant enough for them. People of different ages, different backgrounds, so on and so forth. And suddenly you start seeing different things. For instance, my dad's a stonemason. Robots are going to steal our job doesn't really sound very resonant to him because what he does is quite difficult to get a, you know, it genuinely is quite difficult to get mm-hmm. a machine to do. Um, whereas if you look at like some of the admin tasks I do, yeah, you can totally automate that. So that it, that's, I know that's a basic thing, but even just simply p- taking narratives out of your own immediate surrounding and trying to look at it from different ones, that's one thing. Another thing is looking at things from a different like time perspective. So what does this look like right now? What does it look like in 10 years? What does it look like in 50 years? You know, um, so there's that sort of like different angles I suppose is the first thing um the second thing that I always try and do is try and find a level of credibility for a person and that doesn't mean they have this many degrees or they work at this place or whatever it's working out the context in which they're saying what they're saying so you know if if you see for instance an article on an outlet it's like well is this outlet more left-leaning or more right-leaning um, have they written other stuff similar to this? If it's someone on stage doing a talk, are, do they work for a company? They're trying to sell you something, or are they genuinely here because they want to raise their own profile? Which means they're either saying something to try and get more audience, or they're genuinely trying to show you expertise. What, where, you know, it's, it's it's this sort of like it's not about being cynical about it. It's not about trying to unpick a person and say that they're not credible, but it's working out precisely why they're saying a certain thing um not just what they're saying so for instance if you know I'm well aware that over the next couple of months when you know whenever I write about book related stuff that isn't my book you know books that I love reading or bookshops I love going to 
yes, there's a, from my perspective, there's a lot of genuineness there because I, I really do love books. But there is also a self-serving element to that. I want to sell more of my books and people who follow that kind of content might want to buy my book, right? So there's, hmm. it's, it's quite obvious, you know, it's quite, it's easy to work out why people are doing certain things. And it's not, as I say, it's not about saying they're not legitimate, but it's just understanding context. Um, and that's not, it, the beauty of the internet is that actually not difficult to work out nowadays. It just takes a little minute to have a little Google. Um, mm-hmm. And the third thing is, is I try and it's not about finding two sides to every story because not every story demands that. Um, for instance, if you have, you know, a lot of issues, for instance, like vaccines and climate change and arguments around racism and whatnot and, and trans issues, sometimes there isn't the other side of the story. It's this is <laughs> this is the way this society is. Story. is. <laughs> exactly. Um, however, with other things that kind of are maybe not so explicit it's about working out nuance and you do have to try and see more than one angle um so for instance if you if you look at i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna come back to robots are gonna steal jobs because we keep using that one and everyone's heard that so if you mm. if you take that phrase robots are gonna steal their jobs if you pause for a little second and really instead of just jumping on the fact that it's a, a well-known phrase and actually think about what you're saying you're saying robots are stealing well are robots actually stealing? Like, think about it. No. Company directors are making deliberate decisions to automate particular parts of their companies. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing. But if we keep saying robots are going to steal our jobs, we take the responsibility away from the individuals that are are the ones that are actually making decisions. And it's, you know, accountability disappears. And so if you look at things like when Bill Gates says, oh, we should tax robots. If, if you think about that again from a company perspective, you're essentially taxing innovation. You're saying to companies, you guys have made a decision to choose to use these automation technologies which save you money, um, which are really, really good for creating more things that meets demand, da 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 In one world, you're seen as super, super innovative, but in, if we go down the robots that are going to steal our jobs narratives, it's seen as a negative thing. So we're going to charge you for that. You would get an uproar from business. The minute you say tax robots and then you switch over to innovation tax, which is it's literally exactly the same um, like in terms of a law. But the, the sort of narrative around it and the way it feels to certain people completely shifts. And again, I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. I think in some sense, automation is amazing. I think in others, it's not. But the point is, is if you only hear the narrative, robots are going to steal our jobs, it's always going to feel like an attack. It's always going to feel negative and it completely removes accountability from everyone who's actually playing a part in that. So it's just about taking these narratives and really for just taking that little minute to just try and think around it, like take it out of the context of the catchphrase. Does that make sense? And and I think that that's kind of what I'm always trying to encourage and trying to, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in it. It's so easy to read something and go, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm hearing. I'm guilty. Everyone's, it's not actually, no, guilty is the wrong word. That it's human nature. We can't possibly know everything about everything. But if you start from a position of trying to find the nuance, um, I think you're, not only is it more interesting, <laughs> it's more interesting life to, to look at nuance and things, I believe. Um, but you know, it's it's. I think it's more true, and I think we we sort of live in a world where everyone's wanting answers and 
you know, we want to know if, uh, you know, is nuclear power plants a good thing or a bad thing? And the answer is, it depends. And, you know, it, are renewables the answer to climate change? It depends. It really does. But, you know, we're sometimes we're not okay with the different side or maybe we find it too complex, whatever. But if you start from a position of nuance, it's so, so much easier to, to actually find those answers. Like, it's not as difficult as people think. The thing that's difficult is that we don't even think to question that's that's or we don't feel empowered to question we don't know where to start but if you if you begin from i wonder if that's true all the time to every person it's much easier to even come to those answers without even having to google one question that i get asked a lot is you know Gemma, it sounds like you're campaigning for everyone to try and work out the answer to everything and that's like a huge burden and also unrealistic and not doable. And plenty of people just don't care about, you know, nuclear energy or brain computer interfaces, like it's not affecting their lives. And I I hear that and I agree with it. Of course, you can't possibly think about absolutely everything. You know, there's many things that I don't uh, look at in huge amounts of detail because a, I'm interested in other stuff and B, I don't have the time and C, it doesn't pay. <laughs> but um, I, I think it's more about the things that you are interested in or the things that you are following. And if even if that is just the general news, just about trying to, I, and not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to put blame on people here, but trying to take a bit more responsibility for your own... <sighs> education or your own what you believe about the world and being really open to being wrong you know I've been with my boyfriend now for like four and a half years I think it is and you know he's a really really great uh debater and challenger you know if you say something it sometimes drives me up the wall but if you say a statement he'll be like why and you're like, oh, it just is. Like, I'm just trying to make dinner for crying out loud. And he's like, no, no, but you've said this thing. Like, is that true? Like, is that really what you mean? It's honestly sometimes really, really frustrating. However, a lot of the time, it has made me realize how many things that I suppose I just had assumed as a given and hadn't really questioned um, whether or not, I don't know, it was it was right or right for me. And not just in terms of science and tech, but even daft personal things like marriage for instance you know I was always just like yeah I'll get married I'll have kids da, 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 da. and it wasn't until he was like yeah I'm kind of against marriage and not even for religious things he just kind of thinks it's a bit pointless and I was aghast when he first said it and then I realized it was like oh, I hadn't actually properly thought about it and so I think yeah I've been very privileged because I met someone four and a half years ago that's both driven me up the wall but really challenged my thinking um, and I think it, I realize that a lot of people have maybe not needed to do that before or haven't needed to do it for a broad range of things in their life before. And I genuinely think that something everyone can do to make the world a better place is to think a bit more deeply about your day-to-day -day life. <laughs> I know it sounds, it sounds yeah. so basic, but I think... We've built a world where a lot of time you don't need to think, which is great. It means we can, yeah. I'm talking first world here, but um, I think thinking a bit more is, is, uh, is, is good for the planet and good for the people. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to ask you what was the, the case for caring and you already made it. So that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I do. I think that, I think that we, 
I don't know, like some of the stuff I'm I'm writing about in the book might feel really far away for a lot of folk. Um, and it is, you know, and it's, it's, but I, it's also one of the things that I criticize, um, you know, people who work in science and tech journalism will know this frustration when you're pitching a piece to an editor and it's not always the editor's fault, sometimes publication's fault or whatever. And they say, how does this affect the person's day-to-day life? And you're like, I'm pitching a piece about like quantum matter or something. Like it's very difficult to make this relevant for someone going down the shops to buy some milk. Like it's, it's not, is the short answer. And, you know, it's like, oh, but can we make the human story of the scientist? Can we do this, that, and the other? And, like, of course, I worked in advertising, so I understand storytelling and all that jazz. However, there are plenty of reasons that people find things interesting other than it's about a person or it's relevant for my day-to-day life. I'm interested in stuff that is not relevant for my day-to-day life and is not centered around a person. I mean, I'm literally reading a book about like the inside of Germany in, in second, the Second World War and I'm loving it. And it's not really that, well, I mean, I am actually making some connections to some stories, but that's only because I read like that. It's not really that relevant to my everyday life. And I think that science and technology has been like put in this box that is like only certain people are interested in this. You have to be a kind of strange sort of nerd to be interested in this. And the only way we can talk about it to the regular person is if we make it relevant to everyday life and I think that that is patronizing and I think it's a disservice to people I think it's you're essentially saying people are dumb which is of course not true and you're also assuming that people don't have the ability to care beyond their own little circle which is also not true so I think the case for caring is that people care full stop like people do care and they're interested um and and we're doing people a disservice by not telling full stories or not giving people the opportunity to think around stuff and just telling I don't know simplified narratives that we repeat over and over again I have nothing to add I have nothing left to ask about (laughs) this topic which that's that's not true I do have a lot of questions but um we 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 are we are in a time limit maybe next time we're together we'll have a chance to keep talking about this um I do have one last question that is what is learning for you? I mean, I mean, it's 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 everything. I mean, it's, I I'm I don't really think anything's massively interesting if you're not learning. And I don't. I think learning is more than just reading books and watching documentaries. And it's obviously not just facts. I mean, that's kind of a basic thing to say. But you know, even just learning about. Um, how you react to things or taking note of your emotions or not obsessively tracking your life but just like I get a lot of pleasure of being like huh that's interesting that I wouldn't have thought I would have done that or whatever or I react horribly and I'm really upset and then afterwards I can reflect back I'm not doing it in the moment but um, I don't know I think it's just about like taking stock of what's happening around you and allowing yourself to kind of feel a sense of awe and wonder and pondering around things and you know I read this article a while back it was about um a woman who's a writer and also a mother and it was all about the sort of she was sort of saying being a mother and being a writer kind of incompatible um and and she used this phrase where she says um I used to live the life of of the mind live a life of the mind 
And she was saying that now she was a mother, she was struggling to do that because she couldn't just ponder because she had to look after children. I don't necessarily believe that, but then I'm not a mother, so what can I know? But that phrase, living a life of the mind, like, I mean, this sounds so poncy me saying that, but like, I think that I have the most amount of privilege <laughs> ever because I get to live that life because I, my job is to think and to try and write about it and speak about it and tell people about it. But like, I have permission to do that um, as my job, but I think I've always done it as a hobby. And if that to me, it's, you know, that it's what gives me joy and it's what makes life amazing. Um, and I've, I've always sort of, you know, I studied maths at university and my sort of goal in life is to try and get my mum to understand why I find maths so amazing, why I get this insane sense of like, ah, when I like learn a new mathematical thing, like it it, it feels probably like I've never really done drugs but like if I'm I'm sure people who like do drugs maybe that's how it feels I don't know but that's how it feels to me um and I just like my goal in life is to like get my mum to feel like that about maths and I suppose that's kind of true for everything I do and for me that's what I that's what I think learning is it's like do it putting in the work and and pondering and opening your mind to get those moments every now and again and um I mean, there's nothing better in my mind. (laughs) Great. Let's end there. Thank you, Gemma, for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for having me. This has been been an awesome, interesting conversation. (laughs) Made me think. If you want to get in touch with Gemma, you can find her on Twitter. You'll find a link to her profile and to the references she makes on the episode on the show notes. I would also love to hear from you. You can do that by going to anchor.fm slash learning day and leave a voice message or reach out to the Instagram link you'll find on that page. I'm in the hunt for the next topics to cover here, so don't be shy and contribute. If this episode was useful to you, consider subscribing to Learning Day on your podcast app and, as a little extra, share it with a friend. I don't know where this is going to take us, but I know we're going to learn something along the way. Thank you for listening. See you next time. You can do that by going to anchor.fm slash learning dash day and leave a noise, a noise.